How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, I want to have a few moments of silent prayer for us. Uh, Silent prayer is for the purpose of you uh, making sure that you are in right relationship with God. We are to, to enjoy our fellowship with God. That fellowship or rapport is broken when we sin. Uh, when we confess our sins, we're forgiven and cleansed and we're restored to that relationship. We refer to that as being in fellowship, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit. A lot of different terms are used. It's a dynamic relationship, not a static relationship, which is often what people uh, un- unintentionally think of when they think of being in fellowship. Some people get the idea, if I confess my sins, you know, it's all going to work. No, it just means you're back where you can work. You know, it just means you're back inside the house, as it were, where where all of the relationships with the family take place, and you can grow and mature and advance within that family dynamic uh, with God the Father. But when we sin, we're outside, and we're out in the darkness. We need to get back in the light. So we start with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come before your throne of grace. We look around the world uh, at each day. We hear the news. We think we're just woke up on another planet. And, Father, yet we know that you are in control, that no matter how chaotic things might appear, there you are in control and you control history and you are taking us in the direction that we need to go. And, Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for leadership. We pray for leadership, especially at local levels, in hospitals, We pray for those who are involved in trying to uh, contain and prevent an outbreak of Ebola in this country. We pray that you'd give some good sense to people who are in Washington and in state government that this we have to close the borders. We have to prevent not only stop it at its source, but we also have to prevent anyone getting out and getting into this country. And we need to make some wise decisions and quit playing politics and making foolish decisions from a a position of weakness. Father, we pray for us that we might not uh, get too frustrated with this. Psalm 37 tells us we're not to fret because of evildoers. We're not to focus on it. We're not to get wrapped around the axle about what the uh, bad guys are getting away with. We're to focus upon you and delight ourselves in you and in your word. And we pray that tonight we might be refreshed as we study your word and as we think about the issues of life from a uh, divine viewpoint. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Houston. Just so in case you haven't been caught up on this, a lot of people don't understand. There's really two issues. Issue number one was this HERO ordinance, which is a really a misnomer, but that's the acronym they set up for the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. And that was uh, attempted to be passed by our mayor. Uh, and it, it I, I heard today from a member, associate member of this congregation who's pretty interestingly connected, but he knows a, um, uh, now the name slips me, but he knows one of the homosexual transvestite activists who really put forth this this agenda and gave it to the mayor, uh, Ray Hill. 
and I believe it's his name, and that that and 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 as he was describing Ray's understanding of this law, it is a perfect illustration that when you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and God gives you over in those three different stages that we read about in Romans one, God gave them over to lust of their eyes and whatever, and all the different stages of de- deterioration there, that you can't think clearly anymore. And when he reads what this ordinance says, and when he explained it to uh, to the guy who called me today, uh, his understanding of what it says is not what it says. I mean, they, they just distort it. They look at data, and, and it's reinterpreted through their epistemological grid. And I want to talk a little bit about that this, uh, tonight before we get into our chapter, and maybe we won't get to our chapter, because um, uh, something else happened. First thing this morning, I got an email from another associate member of the congregation uh, with a question that, that brings all this to bear. But anyhow, so, so just to co- finish covering the history of this, this ordinance was passed by a, a large majority in city council. According to the city charter of Houston, there are 30 days to respond or it's just too late. And so the way to respond, according to the city's charter, is to collect signatures on various, uh, on the petitions to call for a referendum that it be put on the ballot. That is the focal point here. The focal point of that petition was not to, uh, in, in, in and of itself, to overturn the ordinance but to put it on the ballot. The whole thing is that the people of Houston ought to have a say in this because it is apparent from many polls and many studies that the people of Houston do not support this ordinance. This is about voting rights. This is about the freedom to, uh, of, Amer- of Houston citizens to be involved politically in this decision and not to have it jammed and rammed down our throats by the city council and by the mayor. It is not a homophobic issue per se. It's not an issue related to that. It is fundamentally an issue of voter rights. So the petitions were put out. Many pastors and churches, plus a number of other people, took those petitions, went around and collected signatures and did the best that they could in validating them. They were presented in a timely manner to the city uh, at the end of June, somewhere around the June 28th or 29th, according to the the standards and according to the, the uh, city charter. It goes, to, according to the city charter, to Anna Russell, who is the city secretary. She's been the city secretary since the last decent mayor of Houston, which is Louis Welch back in the, I think it was Louis in 72. I may be mistaken there. But anyway, she's been around a very, very long time and has had a lot of experience in city government. She was deposed last week, and she said that what happened was she needed to validate, 18, I think it was 18,200 signatures. I read... Uh, somebody today that said it was 17,200, so maybe I'm wrong, but it's 17 or 18,000 signatures. What she did was she went until she had 600 more validated. So she validated approximately, let's say, 18,600 signatures. She looked at only 19,200 to get 18,600 qualified signatures. That means she had about a 98% authentication rate because the people who collected the signatures before they presented them did their homework and validated and authenticated as many as they could so that they turned in all of these petitions that were properly authenticated. They didn't have bogus names or bad names. 
And so Anna Russell wrote a letter to the mayor outlining what she found, coming to the conclusion that there were, yes, indeed, enough signatures on the petitions to put this on the ballot of the next uh, next uh, city election. That happened on a Friday. They have copies of that letter. It's been She's been deposed. It's in the deposition. And over that particular weekend, which was the first weekend in August, the mayor and the city attorney got together, and they said, we can't let this stand. We've got to do something to fight this. And so uh, he looked at all those signatures, and they went through a process where if you couldn't read the signature, if you printed out the name Robert Louis Dean, Jr., and then you looked at the signature, if it did, wasn't legibly Robert Louis Dean, Jr., then it was invalidated. Oliver Pennington, who's one of the city council members who signed a petition, his signature is OLI, and then it just scribbles off. His signature was invalidated. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of doctors, there are a lot of college-educated people. In college, when you take a lot of notes, especially if you go to seminary or law school or medical school, your handwriting just goes down the tube. Penmanship is the first thing to go. And, you're, and many people just have a signature. Maybe it's a Z for Zorro. But you look at that Z and you know what it stands for. It doesn't have to have the whole name there. And so what happened was that they went along and they invalidated uh, so many signatures by saying, and they would invalidate the whole sheet. They would say, well, these signatures aren't legible, so that throw the whole sheet out. And he came back and said they only came up with about 13,000 signatures, and so they don't have enough to, qu- to qualify, and they quashed it. So there were various uh, maneuvers that were made. There's uh, uh, the uh, uh, head lawyer on that case. His, his name is Andy Taylor, and he's one of the foremost uh, lawyers. He was interviewed this morning on the Michael Berry show, and I got to listen to him while I was out running. And uh, and he said that that uh, went through the whole thing and described all the point by point material. But he's one of the top lawyers on uh, elections in the state of Texas. So they went back and forth on this, and finally it was taken to court, and the and they the judge set a court date. For, I think it's in early January when they're going to hear both sides. The major issue at that time was to halt the application of this law until it finally goes to court, which I believe uh, they got, and it's been put on hold until that happens. So all of that's happened, and now they're in the process of deposing uh, various witnesses. The, 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 a suit has been brought against the city of Houston, and so what is typical in a, in a legal case is that they get to depose the people who are involved. But the pastors are not part of that, um, of the group that is bringing the lawsuit. It's not coming from the pastors or from those individuals. I forget who is actually bringing the lawsuit, but it's not those pastors. So what you hear from some people, in fact, American Vision, which is a post-millennial reconstructionist Christian group uh, that, that is pretty good on some conservative things, uh, put out an article yesterday. One of their people wrote an article yesterday and said this is just typical this this is typical of, of of depositions. They want to collect the information, and that's partially true. And anytime there's a lawsuit, they have a pro- legal process of discovery to get the information on both sides that's been processed. This morning, the email that I got that came in was related to that, and the person asked me to explain what I understood because she had gotten information 
from a lawyer that uh, she was familiar with. I'm not going to mention his name, but he's running for judge in Harris County, and from what she says, he's probably on the Democrat ticket, so I hope nobody in here is uh, foolish enough to vote for him. Uh, But he wrote this, and I thought this would be a good uh, teaching tool for everybody in terms of how we think and how we as believers ought to think. In, In my study of the Word over the last probably 10 years since I've been here is always there, but but I've come to think that probably the most significant verse in the Bible related to uh, the, the role of the church, the role of the education philosophy of the church is Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to the world. And the word there is ionos, which is a time word that I've frequently translated the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the thinking of the age. It's, it's similar to cosmic thinking, to cosmos, Cosmos focuses on the orderly arrangement of the thought. Uh, Ionos locates that within a time period or an age. So as we go through the history of ideas, every, every empire, every culture goes through these various periods where thought systems change. When thought systems change, Everything changes. Your view of music changes. Your view of art changes. Your view of of, uh, politics and law. All of these things change. In the 19th century, within 20 years of the founding of this country, we started going through a major shift in the thought form of this country in what is frequently referred to as modernism. Early part of the 20th century, we started shifting into postmodernism. All of that is is something different. But everybody who grows up in a non-theistic culture grows up thinking within the, the framework of a of this kind of a thought system. They grow up thinking like a modernist. And most of you think more like a modernist probably than you do like a biblical Christian. And that's always the problem. And that's what, what I'm talking about tonight. Now, some of you have been around a long time and you've made tremendous headway in that. But But this is... This is one of the battles that we have to fight. Romans 12.2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your thinking. Now, it's not easy to renew our thinking. I want to give you a mental picture to think about. I'm going to, I've got one slide to try to illustrate this. I want you to picture building a house. Jesus used a house-building analogy in the Gospel of Matthew that you have the wise man builds on a rocky foundation and a foolish man builds on a foundation of sand or that, that, that can shift. And then when the storms of life come, the house that's built on the sand falls down and the house that's built on the rock stands up. A lot of Christians still have a sandy soil in their mentality. They still think like a pagan. They may have adopted a lot of establishment truth. They may have adopted a lot of biblical vocabulary that has entered into their foundation. But their foundation hasn't shifted to the rocky foundation of the Word of God. And the foundation in both scenarios is your presuppositions. And if I'm going to switch metaphors here to a medical metaphor, that, that presupposition has to do with your mental immune system. And if your foundation is still based on, to some degree, on on paganism, then you've got a compromised mental immune system. 
and you're going to get sucked into a lot of bad and erroneous thinking, no matter how biblical or doctrinal you think you are. And this is what happens here. So she is a, a woman who came from a church where I grew up, where many of you have been, where, where the Word of God was taught very faithfully and very well, but a lot of people didn't get it. And it's not unique to that congregation. More people don't get it in a lot of other churches. But it's, this is one of the problems with modern evangelicalism is that they have built their, their biblical framework in, in, in the uh, above ground, above foundation thought system on the soil that they had when they were an unbeliever. They never change at the presuppositional level. They still think in terms of being an unbeliever. And so when the pressure really comes, their default is to being like an unbeliever. So this guy wrote as a lawyer, and it's, his answer is, it illustrates the problems. This is a guy who sat under teaching the Word of God for probably 20 or 30 years. And I've run into this kind of stuff all my life. He says, the fact on this issue, as I understand it, is that the pastors uh, were told um, by a flyer of a lawsuit about how to properly fill out petitions. I don't know what he means by a flyer, but but we got information one way or another and uh, on how to address the the petitions, what the correct way to do it so that they would end up being being legal. That much is correct. He says, so as a result, the sermons are relevant to that issue. Well, wait a minute. The verbiage in the subpoena was that all the sermons, all the text messages, all the iMessages, all the chats, all of the emails, all of, that's a huge word, all of the communication of the pastors in relation to homosexuality. 20, how many years you want to go back for some of these people? Ed Young's been there a long time. I've been teaching a long time. A lot of other pastors have been teaching a long time. Homosexuality is a big issue, but the issue on the petitions had nothing to do with the issue of the hero ordinance. It had to do with whether the petitions were valid. So they want everything they've ever said or taught about homosexuality, anything they've ever said about the mayor, anything that they've ever said about the hero ordinance, anything that they've ever said about the petition. They basically put this out there. Now, what the response is from the other side is, oh, well, we farmed this out to pro bono lawyers. The biblical word for that is scubala. (laughs) The law firms, Andy Taylor was talking about when he went to court in, in, uh, uh, in August. He went to court. He's in there representing the good guys. And the city lawyer, David Feldman, came in with 15 pro bono lawyers. So it's 15, to, basically 15 or 16 to 1 in the courtroom. And, and the guy who's sitting second chair for Feldman is one of the top lawyers in one of the biggest, most powerful law firms in this city. I, I heard his name, recognized the law firm this morning, but I'm not going to mention names. Every one of those lawyers represented one of the top law firms in this country. Now, 
Michael Berry made a good point. He used to be a city councilman. He knows the intricacies of how all these systems work. He said the reason these big law firms do this kind of pro bono work, and what you and I hear sometimes when you hear pro bono is we're getting some secondary lawyer who just has to do a charity deal, and he's not really putting everything into it. And that is a complete misunderstanding of how this system works. They're in there donating their time because they're going to get on David Feldman's good side. David Feldman's a city attorney, and the responsibility of the city attorney is to determine what law firms get the contracts to handle the legal work for the city. So if you do, if it, it's tit for tat. So you go in there and you donate your time and you do a really bang-up job for the city, then you're going to get multi-million dollar contracts for your law firm. So this is how, how this system works. So they may be pro bono lawyers, but let me tell you, they're some of the best lawyers in the country. And and what the mayor is trying to say, and I've got a tweet from her to prove her wrong, she's coming out and saying, well, I never read it. And Feldman is saying, well, I never read those subpoenas either. That's just too broadly worded. Garbage, scubalon, that is just bold-faced lying. In a tweet from Anise Parker, which I actually saw on ABC 13 News this morning, she said, if the five pastors use pulpits for politics, their sermons are fair game. They want to go after all all the sermons. Uh, Were instructions given on filling out the anti-hero petition? So she she knows that everything was asked for. She understood that's what was asked for, and she's just trying to backpedal. And so they're lying. They are lying through their teeth. They are lying to the citizens of Houston, and their ultimate game, ultimately, as I pointed out in the email yesterday, is that the homosexual gay... Uh, lesbian, transgender agenda is to stop anybody, whether you're an Orthodox Jew, whether you're a Christian, whether you're just somebody with good sense, or whether you're a Muslim. All of these people stand against this ordinance. And, and what they want is anybody who has a system of morality that doesn't approve of their behavior, they want to silence them. They do not want them to be able to say anything. The bottom line here is they want to remove the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran from having any influence on the ethics or on the thinking of people around. So back to what this lawyer said. First of all, he's saying all the sermons, he's validating the, the assumption that it's a, it's a legitimate request asking for all the sermons related to all those topics. And there's about six or seven other topics that they uh, listed in, in the wording of the, of the subpoena. And so he says the lawyers and judge will work out the scope of the request. The mayor's office issued a st- statement, which I shared with in a previous post. Meanwhile, though not widely known for many years, many pastors who want to challenge the Johnson Amendment. Here's this guy who's, who's spreading a lie here. This is not true. Uh, many pastors for a while, for, and it is widely known that there's, it's usually around this time of year, there is what's called Freedom Pulpit Sunday when a lot of pastors will preach on uh, politics specifically, and some of them send all their their messages to uh, to the IRS. Uh, many many do not. It's a small number of of white churches. There's uh, studies indicating that about 70 percent of black churches endorse individual candidates from the pulpit, and only about 17 percent of white churches endorse specific candidates. What's interesting is of the five pastors that are named, if you go back, some of you have seen the clips that they've shown from the, from the rally that I was at at, um, 
at city council and the steps of city council, as well as the, um, uh, the, the when they were in the city council chambers, there were a number of, of black pastors who were speaking, but not one black pastor was named in the agenda. Now, I think that's kind of racist. Uh, they don't want to. They don't want to anger the black community. But there were a number of uh, black pastors who were up on the stand today. Ted Cruz had a had a uh, press uh, press conference at First Baptist. I was there, but I didn't get the word to go that I was supposed to get there early and get up on the platform with all the other pastors. So I was in the back of the room, which may be good because when they're all in jail, I'll be the only one preaching the word. But uh, I was glad to see that two of my former students from WHW were up there on the platform. And there were, uh, of the 36 pastors that were on the pulpit, uh, on the platform, I counted seven or eight that were black. So that's, uh, that's almost 25%. That's a higher demographic percentage than the, the black representation in the city. So I was very glad, uh, very glad to see that. But but the city has has avoided that. Anyhow, this 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 guy goes on to say that um, and basically to blame the pastors that they're they're making a big deal out of this that this really isn't a First Amendment issue at all uh, when when it is. Now let me tell you wh- why he's gotten confused in his thinking. On the left, I have the picture of the thinking of an unbeliever. On the right, I have a picture of a weak believer. The believer on the left starts off, and his foundation is that there's no biblical God. Whatever his position is, whatever he's coming out of, whether he's coming out of atheism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, or any other religious system where there's a distortion, he doesn't have a biblical God at his foundation. That's what philosophers call metaphysics. Everything comes out of your view of metaphysics, but nobody ever talks about it anymore. People, people get involved with debates over here, behavior, law, p- politics, and policy, and they fight up, in, up at this level, but they never talk about this. This is all kind of underground. Your view of God is going to influence your view of knowledge, which is called epistemology, your view of truth, and your view of authority. How do you know it's true? What's your authority for saying X, Y, and Z is true? That's your authority, because, and that's what connects it down to the foundation, because your authority is what you think the ultimate reality is. If the ultimate reality is just matter, then there's nothing to go to. If your ultimate reality is impersonal, there's, there's n- nothing to appeal to, and you become the ultimate reality. This is what we see in the book of, Ju- of Judges. There was no God in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, so you become a sel- your, your own authority. And it is out of that that you develop your values, what's right, what's wrong, uh, what your norms and standards are, what your ethics are. All of that flows out of your understanding of knowledge and truth and authority. And if you're an unbeliever, it's going to be consistent with your view that there's no biblical God. And then your your behavior, your practice, what you do, the laws that you uh, sign into practice, your, the politics, your political theories, your your policies, all flow out of your values, your norms, and and your ethics. And what we do so often when we talk to people is we just argue up at this level, and we never get to the real issue. There, if somebody's consistent as an unbeliever, they're going to end up way out in left field. 
Many times I've mentioned uh, Thomas Sowell's book, Conflict of Vision, where he points out that liberalism is grounded on a utopic view that man is basically good, whereas conservatism is based on a realistic view that man is basically evil. And that defines the difference between the two views because the liberal view sees everything as perfectible and the conservative view just sees that you can make it more orderly but you can't perfect it. And so they're not trying to get engaged in social activism and uh, progressivism. Progressivism, which characterizes almost everybody who's a, who's a thoughtful Democrat and about a third of the, of the Republican Party, is based on a view that we can, we can bring in some sort of utopic state and we should be engaged in social, social activism. But if you become a believer, then all of a sudden your foundation is no longer a biblical God, but you have a diluted view of God. You, 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 you now say, I believe in a triune God. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But if you're a baby believer, you really don't have a clue what that means or how that impacts your understanding of knowledge and truth. Now, if you hang around for a while, you're going to start picking up some biblical knowledge, which may be exchanged for the knowledge you had before. You're going to at least superficially think that you're under the authority of the Word of God and under the authority of the Bible. But because you really don't have a well-grounded theology proper, you don't really understand God and his essence and his plan and his purpose, then your view of, of authority is going to be diluted. You're, you're going to sometimes base your decisions on uh, experience and, and uh, uh, reason and mysticism rather than exclusively upon the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't give you the sole ground, the soul. That means the only, the one and only, the exclusive authority in your life. And it takes a long time for a baby believer to get to the point where he understands how exclusive that authority is in every area of thinking. And then uh, that changes your values. And and an immature believer can have a lot of values change at a surface level. But as Jesus points out, when the storm comes, when you come under the peer pressure of society, when you're involved in certain professions and you work for certain companies and your human resources people come down and say that you have to validate uh, same-sex marriage and you have to provide different things for them. Now, we don't have that in Texas, but it's coming. And you, have, you work for a company that says that, that, um, that ver- various other social engineering schemes that are handed down for the, from the government and from various legislative decisions have to be implemented and you have to implement them, then as an immature believer without enough confidence in the Word of God, you say, well, i got to keep my job. I've got to be able to work here. I've got to provide an income for my family. Now, this really isn't going to hurt things too much. I just have to do what my boss says to do, but I don't, be- I don't believe it's true, but that's, that's my job. And usually it's not that much of a compromise at first, but... It's increased more and more over the last, the last 30 years. I had a situation in Dallas about 25 years ago where I had a man in my church who worked for what was then Southwestern Bell. 
and and they were required to go to sensitivity training and new new basically new age mysticism guided imagery all of these kinds of things and he said absolutely not along with a number of other christians and they got away with it you couldn't get away with that today because what what happened is too few people raised uh, raised objections to that and so now they've compromised, and people have compromised and compromised and compromised. So we have a generation that those who are under 35 just don't understand why, why these old fogies who, uh, who are Christians are making such a big deal about this. And then you hear the libertarian crowd come in, and they say, well, we just want to be uh, uh, economic conservatives. Uh, we don't, we don't want, the Republican Party cannot survive with these Christians in here because it's these social issues that are dividing the country. Well, you can't do that. You're, you're, I, I, I'm not going to be insulting. You're a fool, biblically, if you think that. Because if this hero ordinance goes into effect, what do you think the economic consequence of that is going to be? It's going to be huge. It's going to force every business in this city to have a third restroom for for those who are gender confused. It's going to create, uh, you're going to have all kinds of legal cases that are going to come up that are going to, people are going to be fined. It's going to have all kinds of economic consequences throughout business. You can't make a social decision that doesn't have economic consequences. It's clearly illustrated in the Mosaic Law. When, when God said, if you give yourself over to perversion and idolatry and disobedience, these are the consequences. Now, you can't go into the laboratory and say there's a direct correlation between the fact that if you go into immorality, then a drought is going to come is going to start and your crops are going to fail and you're going to have a, a depression and then you're going to fall apart militarily. You can't draw in one-to-one correlation unless you have the God of the Bible who is sitting there controlling both aspects. But if you have an impotent view of the God of the Bible who's not controlling both sides, see, the, the reason this bad social decisions impact economics bad isn't because it's a direct correlation, but it's an indirect correlation that goes through God. And God's in control of both. And so people don't understand that, so they think that they can play with this. And this is what's eviscerating constitutional conservatives in this country is because they have compromised their thinking at a foundational level. And they are thinking like pragmatists and relativists presuppositionally. And a lot of Christians, I can't even talk to most Christians about this because they can't think their way through it because they they haven't been taught enough to be able to understand these kinds of these kinds of issues and and many people say well I have to do this to get along I have to do this uh, people who are on faculties there are cases where they fight these things and they win it's not pleasant there are a lot of people they're just not fighters and they're not going to they're not going to fight and die on these hills but the problem is, for every hill you don't fight and die on, sooner or later you've lost a lot of hills, and you're in trouble. And and you have to make judgment calls. I know there's a few people here who never saw a hill small enough that they wouldn't fight and die for. Okay, but we have to make we have to make good decisions, and we and this is one that's important because what's at stake here is the first first amendment. And, and the problem you see is a lot of Christians don't understand it because you can't get along anymore. They just want to be about their business. 
they're working for some law firm, and as part of their responsibilities as a law firm, they've got to go defend a lot of clients that are engaged in unethical conduct, and so they have to compromise. Or they're working as, as a teacher or a professor somewhere, and they have material that they have to communicate in their curriculum that uh, is contrary to the Bible. And it's, it's the little... It's, it, people don't make compromises in one big jump. They make compromises one small step at a time. And next thing they do, they look around, and all of a sudden they find that they've shifted from being a, from claiming to be a conservative Bible-believing Christian to being someone who's not as convinced about the Bible and has joined the other side. And in a, after explaining some of that to the person who sent that to me, um, she responded and said, well, it seems like this person is very much involved in turning Houston, I mean, turning Texas into a blue state. This is somebody who spent years under sound doctrinal teaching. But the reason he never made it is because there was, and I love this term, but 99% of the people who understood it, who heard it, never understood it, epistemological rehabilitation. Epistemological rehabilitation isn't changing what's in these top two boxes. Epistemological rehabilitation is hard, and it takes place in the lower two boxes. And the problem is that most Christians never change those basic presuppositions that they picked up when they were when they were growing up, when they were influenced by their peers, when they were being brainwashed by a secular school system and being brainwashed by a uh, atheistic secular uh, college professors, and as a result, they're 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 they've got a split personality almost. They're, they're, they they have inclinations at their foundation that are pagan but they know that they ought to be Christian and they don't know why they have this conflict. And then when the pressure comes and when the culture starts really putting pressure on them and it's their job, it's their career, it's their retirement, then all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, I just can't go there. I don't want to raise my head up. I don't want anybody to notice me. I just have to make it. I'm not going to get engaged in a fight because, because, because and what they've done is they've compromised and compromised and compromised and they didn't know it they weren't big there were no big red flags they just didn't know how to think biblically and they got snookered by the cosmic system again and again and again until they're basically a wolf in sheep's clothing and now there's a problem and it's the job of the pastor and I'm concerned because not enough pastors are showing up at these things. It's the job of the pastor both to teach the Word of God as well as to protect the sheep that are in his sheepfold. And part of my job, as I understand it, is I need to protect you. And at times that means going out into the civic world and being involved in protecting us so that we can have a ministry that is not being interfered with by the government. And this is what gave uh, a foundation to this govern to, to the United States was the uh, was the pastors that took their stand during the American War War for Independence. And one of my uh, one of my favorite stories is a Peter Muhlenberg and his brother Augustus. Peter Muhlenberg is well known. You've heard me tell the story. He was a lieutenant colonel, taken his, had taken his con- commission in the Continental Army. And he stood up in the pulpit of his church. He was a Lutheran. His father was a major preacher in the uh, first uh, enlightenment. And he stood up in his pulpit and he pulled off his, his clerical robes and underneath was the uniform of a, of a colonel in the, uh, 
in the Continental Army, and he basically said, who's going to follow me into battle? And he recruited his battalion from his congregation, and off they went. One of his most vocal critics was his brother, Augustus. Augustus was a pastor in New York. Augustus told him he was wrong. It's not the role of the pastor to be involved in civic affairs. It's not the role of the pastor to be involved in in politics or to be involved in, in the fight. And that was Augustus Muhlenberg's point until the British captured New York. And the British knew that the greatest enemy that they had in the colonies were the pastors. So they burned the churches. And they burned Augustus Muhlenberg's church. Boy, did he repent and convert in a hurry. Later, he became the first speaker of the house. We have to understand, there, there's a time when we just stick to our knitting, but part of our knitting in, as pastors involves protecting the congregation and being out there so that we can make our voice heard. And people in the congregation need to hear that. And this is a battle. It's not one I wanted. I'm much happier staying in my study and working through a lot of Greek and Hebrew and studying the text. But if I'm going to continue that in 10, 15, 20 years, and if I'm going to continue to teach men who can teach your children and your grandchildren, then we have to have the freedom to do it. And if this doesn't change, we're not going to have the freedom to do it. And, And what we do in terms of Bible study and Bible teaching today without being involved in these situations and trying to correct them, uh, then, then we won't have a future. And we won't have the opportunity to teach the Word of God because we won't have the freedom to do it because there will be government officials. Now, this is just one. There's, there's going to be a 100 battles like this, and it's very possible that the, the mayor is going to be forced to back down uh, and they're going, to, they're, they're going to restrict this, but they shouldn't be coming after anything that a pastor says. That's, his, that's the church's intellectual property, and it should be completely off limits according to the First Amendment. But they're going to they're gonna, uh, try to back off of this, and they're going to come out with a lot of rationalizations and everything, and they may end up being completely defeated on the issue because there's been an enormous hue and cry raised against the mayor and against the city council. But this is only the first shot across the bow. Uh, this is just the beginning. This is a long war. In fact, the war started about about 100 years ago. And for a lot of people, they're just waking up to the fact that there's something going on. But this war has been going on since, the, since progressivism first reared its ugly head in the beginning of the, of the 20th century. So we need to learn that, that, that we have, this is part of the angelic conflict. It's part of our spiritual warfare, and it's part of the battle, whether we like it or not. When 9-11 occurred, one of my first thoughts was, oh, no, I'm going to have to study Islam. I hate studying Islam. I'm going to have to become an expert on Islam. But you know what? That's where the battle is today. And as Martin Luther said, if we don't, reinforce and fight the battle at the point at which the fortress is being attacked, then we're going to lose the battle. And we don't get to choose where the enemy attacks us. And this is where we're being attacked. So we have to fortify ourselves. And the only way we can do that is with the Word of God. So let's get into, for 15 minutes, we'll get into the opening part of Romans 16. Romans 16, I've always thought, is is unusual. This is the longest closing of any of Paul's uh, epistles. 
and it contains a lot of personal information and a lot of personal greetings. And there's a huge number of names here that are that are unfamiliar to everybody. They're not mentioned uh, anywhere else, and so they're uh, virtually unknown. There are a few that are known, but most of them we don't know anything about. But we can learn some things just by way of overview. One of the first things that we see here is that that Paul had a wide variety of colleagues and friends and associates and people who loved him. And he was very much a personal person. Now, what you see so often in, in psychological characterizations of the Apostle Paul is that, that he is this... Um, he's, he's, he's this, this obsessive, detail-oriented theologian that's more concerned with truth than he is with people. I mean, that's how the modern mindset wants to approach, uh, approach the Bible. Everything has to be categorized according to modern ca- concepts of psychology and, and sociology. But here we see that he's very personal. Another thing that you often hear from liberal and neoliberal and neo, neo-orthodox and neo-evangelicals, how's that for a lot of neos, um, individuals today, is that Paul was a misogynist, that he hated women. And yet what we see here is that Paul mentions a number of women and praises them because of their involvement in their, the ministry and in the local church. Paul clearly recognizes that there are role distinctions between men and women, but there, there's no equality distinction between men and women. They are equally in the image and likeness of God, but God designed men and male souls for one purpose and women and feminine souls for another, uh, another reason. Another thing we should note here is that God the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve these names down through 2,000 years of church history and on into eternity. And if every word of the Bible is inspired by God, then there's a reason for this, and we ought to try to spend some time trying to think through why is this important. And I think part of this is that it shows us the kind of people that were involved in the congregation in Rome. There are probably other reasons and some of which we'll see as we go through this, but that Paul is writing Romans. And we've gone through a lot of what people will consider to be extremely difficult and heavy theology and doctrine. But Paul wasn't writing uh, to to Dr. Dean or to Dr. Ice or to Dr. Walverd or to Dr. Ryrie. He's writing to Bill and Sue and Mary and Jane and those were the common names, uh, to the common names, like we have the common names of these people. He's writing, and some of these are, are, are considered to be uh, predominantly names that you would find among slaves, according to certain, certain scholars. I don't, I think that's a certain amount speculative, but, but that's the conclusions that, that many have reached. So they're people that come from the whole spectrum of life. Some of them are servants and some are slaves. Some are in the military. Some are merchants. Some are community leaders. But they're the, they're, they're the everyday people of the Roman Empire. They are not professional Bible scholars. They're not professional theologians. And Paul expects all of these everyday people to fully comprehend and understand and implement what he has written in in Romans. So it gives us a, a little bit of a picture 
of the people that Paul is is writing to and ministering to. Now he starts off in Romans 16.1 with a commendation for Phoebe. He commends Phoebe. The word that is used there is a word that he's used in two or three other places. Uh, for example, 2 Corinthians uh, 3.1 is a similar word. And Romans 3.5 talking about rec- a recommendation of an individual to the congregation. He identifies her as Phoebe, our sister. Uh, she's not a biological sister, but she is a fellow member in the body of Christ, the royal family of God. And so he refers to her as a sister, just as he referred to other male believers as brothers. We are all in the body of Christ if we are a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he recommends her to. Now, we don't know a lot about Phoebe. The name Phoebe is a pagan name uh, that of a woman that uh, we don't know anything else about. It's the feminine form of the Greek word phoibos, which was one of the alternate names for Apollo. It means the bright one. Apollo was the sun god in the Greek pantheon. Such names were often given to slaves, who, of course, retained them uh, even if they were set free. free. Phoebe was more than likely a free woman. She is called a servant of the church. Now, this term has caused quite a bit of discussion. It is the feminine form of the word diakonos, from which we get our English word deacon. And so there are a number of people who have sought to establish a doctrine on this, that the, that the apostolic church had an office of deaconesses. There's absolutely no support for that anywhere in in the New Testament. This, there are only actually two, two verses that, that people go to to support that. This is one of them, and the other one comes up a little further down in verse, verse uh, uh, 7 when it uh, talks about, um, or in verse 2, rather, verse 2, and then later on in verse 7 it will come up again. In verse 2 it talks about her as the one who uh, has been a helper of many and of myself also. We'll talk about that word in just a minute. Uh, this word refers to somebody primarily who is a functions as a servant. Now, in the early church, in the early church, you basically had two offices. You had the pastor, who sometimes called an elder and sometimes called an overseer, depending on his function. But the pastor focused on his leadership uh, the fact that he's an elder focuses on his spiritual maturity. The fact that he's called an overseer uh, emphasizes his responsibility of oversight over the congregation. Then you had deacons. Deacons were responsible for carrying out various day-to-day functions within a, a, any local church or any kind of organization. They didn't have a board like we have. We think of the board of deacons. They meet once a month. There's a chairman of the board and a treasurer and these different offices. That's sort of an outgrowth and development from, from, the, from development of corporations and, and Western civilization. In the early church, I think the model was closer to this. I think that the the Word of God is, is broad enough and flexible enough to be adapted to a lot of different cultures. You, but the primary leader of the congregation is the pastor. He is the leader. He's the one who has the spiritual gift, and it's his focus. But he doesn't. he's not a lone ranger. He doesn't run it all himself, and he has help. And they had deacons. So you look around. You have a church. You have somebody who needs to take care of the money. So the pastor would appoint 
uh, someone who who was trustworthy, who had integrity, who would be function like a treasurer. Then you'd have somebody else who might need to take care of the the distribution of the money to the widows and orphans, and so he would uh, that person would be qualified spiritually and would be a deacon. You might have somebody else who who would take care of their physical facilities. Uh, there might be two or three other responsibilities, and so he appoint, would appoint men to carry out those responsibilities, and they would carry out those responsibilities and report to the pastor. And that was the, the rudimentary structure in the early church. Now, if there was a deaconess, then it would be a woman who was appointed who would carry out responsibilities in terms of ministry to women and needs that were particularly uh, associated with women in the congregation. I don't have a problem with that, but there's no evidence until the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, that it becomes uh, the deaconess idea is, is, is an office. Certainly, the, the, uh, a woman did not have the author, authority over anyone, any man especially, uh, did not have authority over a man and, did not, and was not allowed to teach. That wasn't part of the role. It was simply to carry out and oversee certain responsibilities. I could think of some things that we have in this church that are comparable. Anne Anne does a wonderful job as a church hostess. That would be that kind of a position. Judy does a great job in terms of the nursery and some other things in the kitchen. That would be that kind kind of a job. Uh, That would be what a deaconess did. It wasn't something that was was, uh, an official leadership type of position. But I don't think it was, there's no evidence in Scripture that it was anything official, and I think the word here should best be translated as servant. She served the church, and the second verse really helps us understand exactly what that meant. She was a helper of many, and Paul says, and of myself also. Now, the word that's, that's, uh, that's used here is the feminine singular of the word prostatis. The, notice the last two letters are I-S. The, the masculine form of the noun has prostatase, okay? It's an E-S, and that would indicate something completely different. In fact, in a study of the word, the word prostatase uh, has the idea of a leader or a chief or a ruler. I'm quoting from... Uh, uh, I believe this this quote comes from uh, John Murray, who was a head of the theology department at Westminster Seminary in his commentary in Romans, and he said, "The feminine form prostatis, related to the mask related to the masculine prostatase, a guardian or defender. The is the masculine is not used to Phoebe as one who rules in Jewish literature. The masculine word took on the meaning of the feminine." Uh, which meant patroness or helper. So in Jewish literature, whether it's masculine or feminine, it picked up this idea of a patron, a patroness, or someone who helped someone. So it had a different connotation in a Jewish context. In a uh, pagan context, the masculine had the idea of a ruler or a leader, but that meaning is completely foreign here. So she apparently was an independent businesswoman. She had her had uh, some financial resources, and she was able to help uh, the Apostle Paul and help other believers financially. 
And so he is, she's coming to Rome, and Paul says that uh, he's encouraging them. Uh, he recommends her to them and that they receive her in the Lord because she's another believer. That's what in the Lord means, in a manner worthy of the saints. In other words, be gracious and kind to her, welcome her, uh, show her every bit of hospitality, assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for she's been a helper of many, including myself. So he's encouraging that, and that's something that should be part of the role of any any uh, pass in any congregation, rather, is to help those who are traveling through. We had an example last summer where a family from Cornerstone Bible Church up in Lubbock was down here. The woman was fighting cancer, and she had to go through a. Uh, a bone marrow transplant, and so we organized people in a way that from several different congregations where they cooked food and provided meals and helped to take care of her. That is a tremendous function of a local church. It shows grace orientation, and it shows the function of the body of Christ in ministering to one another, and there are a lot of different ways uh, that that can, take, that that can take place. So that is the role of Phoebe. Now then next time I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about the next couple that's mentioned here that we do know a little bit more about, which is Priscilla and Aquila. And this gets us into another little issue related to the role of women in ministry that we need to talk about because this example is often given by people who say, well, Priscilla taught. And so Paul was not consistent uh, in First Timothy 2, uh, 8 through 12, when he talks about not allowing women to teach, because Priscilla and Aquila shared the gospel and straightened out Apollos. So there's an example of a teacher, and that's just such a perverted way of understanding and reading Scripture. I'm just amazed at thinking people do that. But when you don't have a foundation, when you haven't completely developed a solid foundation of biblical truth as your authority, then you're always going to be swayed and compromised by the culture around you, and it will destroy your spiritual life, and you will become completely ineffective in it. And so next time we'll come back and talk talk about that. Father, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we can come together this evening and to uh, reflect upon these things to talk about how your word applies to our thinking about political issues, our thinking about civic issues, our thinking about things that go on around us. And, Father, we continue to pray for our mayor. We, pr- pr- uh, we pray for those around her. We pray that those who get the gospel uh, can give the gospel to her, that she would be receptive, that somebody would give her a clear understanding. And we know that only through your grace, And through your love, can you turn this situation around personally for her spiritually? But also we pray that if this battle continues, that you would raise up uh, very clear, patient, uh, gracious leaders who stand firm for your word and that we might be able to turn back this this tide uh, of, of paganism that is engulfing this nation. And if not, Father... We pray that we might be steadfast and faithful and that we might come to understand within our own thinking the ways in which we have compromised our our beliefs and what we hope is our spiritual maturity just so we don't have to put up with battles and conflicts with people around us. It's so easy to do that. And, Father, give us a real sensitivity to areas where we're prone to compromise, prone to uh, let our sin nature get away with... with um, all sorts of of sins that we might be uh, 
sold out on your word and truly, completely overhaul the presuppositions of our thinking so that they are in line with your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.